Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This is about giving Canadians an opportunity to weigh in at a really pivotal time. Conservatives are united. We are the only option. And saying to people that are separatists in Alberta, don't waste your time with the Maverick Party. We need a party that isn't left or right, but just true north. You are no ally and you are no feminist. So many people are wondering why this selfish summer election. Justin Trudeau wants to grab power. This is a historic moment we are living through. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and how elections are not the time to discuss serious issues. Today on the show, it's a pandemic election and Canada's leaders are once again arguing about public versus private healthcare. But healthcare is so much more complicated than that. So why aren't our leaders talking about it properly? And if you're outside Quebec, you might have forgotten, but the Bloc Québécois are also running in this election. They dropped their platform last week. We're going to explore regional threats to a liberal majority government. Joining me this week, our second episode about this election, Emily Nicola, columnist at the Gazette and Le Devoir. Hi. We also have Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of The Hub. Hey. And Lena Manifi, producer, filmmaker, and co-founder of Ricochet Media, who is in British Columbia and joining us very, very early in the morning. Good morning. Okay, let's get into it. So if there's one thing we've learned from this pandemic, it's that our globally celebrated, universally accessible, practically free healthcare system is also deeply, deeply flawed. Wait times for things like MRIs and specialist appointments are still very, very long, longer now even as a result of COVID-19. Family doctors are struggling to keep up with growing community needs and the new complicated world of virtual care. Long-term care is a disaster and nurses are burnt out and rapidly leaving the industry. 
Before we even get into the specifics and merits of what each political party is promising to do to improve all of this, there's two important things to understand that I'm going to dumb down because we can't improve healthcare without getting this at all. Number one, in Canada, the federal government sets and enforces national standards for insured healthcare services. They provide all provinces and territories money through fiscal transfers. Number two, the provinces administer health care plans. They get to choose who provides the insured health care services and what services are offered. Now, this election, like every election before it, the provinces are asking any future government to increase these health care transfers. They're saying the pandemic has shown that provinces need more money and more autonomy. Now, Stuart, both the Conservatives and the NDP have offered to work with provinces on this. Aaron O'Toole has promised to meet with premiers to strike a new agreement in his first 100 days to talk about health care transfers. Jagmeet Singh has said something broader about working with provinces to increase primary care. How important is provincial health care funding in this election? How much should we care about it? It's an interesting question because the politics of this question kind of become untethered from the reality of the situation. So when you're fighting an election campaign, you're kind of making symbolic arguments. I I think that Kim Campbell was criticized for saying that an election is not a time to talk about serious issues, but it's kind of true because you can't. If you're a politician, you are not going to explain how our healthcare works in a stump speech. I mean, this is not something that the liberals do exclusively. It's what every party does during an election. But I I think what it comes down to is, does Aaron O'Toole get stuck in the same position that Andrew Scheer got stuck in on social issues where people just didn't trust him? And the same position where Stockwell Day got stuck in like 20 years ago on healthcare, where they were able to hang the two-tier argument around him and he never got out of it. Emily, the discussion about provincial healthcare transfers is actually being led by Quebec Premier Francois Legault. You're in Quebec right now. Tell us what the temperature is like and how important healthcare is to that province and the rest of the country. I think all provincial premiers are actually in agreement that healthcare transfers need to be raised. The difference is in terms of, you know, argumentation, Legault is very much about, you know, respecting provincial competencies and, you know, Quebec should be able to make its own decision. Um, so there's a lot of rhetoric around it. But there's also a major difference, which is that uh, the Quebec premier is talking about balancing its budget. If the federal government was to increase healthcare transfer, it might not actually go in the healthcare system. It might just go into balancing off the debt. That's also part of the tug of war between the federal and the provincial government here. Justin Trudeau wants to have some conditions into into the healthcare transfers. He wants to be able to say this money is going to go to this and this and that. Legault wants to make all the decisions on his own. So the conservatives agree with Legault. Legault is saying that Trudeau wants him to use the money to hire more doctors and nurses. And then Legault says in jest, it takes years to train more nurses and doctors. We're not going to find them overnight. And that that I think is really telling because the reality on the ground is that there's been a lot of healthcare practitioners, especially nurses, who are fed up with being underpaid, being forced to do overtime, so mandatory overtime. Vacations have been canceled. If you're a nurse in Quebec, you've been forced to work like 70 hours a week and then you don't even get to have vacations. That's been the reality in the pandemic. So of course, people are leaving to the private sector. 
we're talking about the two-thirds system, there's a labor shortage just because we don't bother to pay a majority of women correctly because we've been, we've been focusing our budget on doctors who are part of the government in some ways and are really listened to as lobbyists. And so it's really interesting because it's a conversation about healthcare transfers, but it just really opens up this crap bucket of other issues and how basically there's a philosophy of underpaying the vast majority of women, a lot of them racialized women who work in healthcare, as because of that, there's a labor shortage and people are trying to figure out a way out of the labor shortage that somehow doesn't put on the table the option of actually paying those women decently. And because of that, we're thinking that throwing money at the healthcare system is going to help. But as long as we're not having a conversation about throwing that money at those women who are underpaid and exploited, uh, I'm not sure we're going to actually solve anything. Well, it's interesting you, you say that because most of the party platforms are about boosting the healthcare with expenditure, with funding, with dollars. Like the Liberal plan is proposing to invest $6 billion on top of the $4 billion they invested recently to get rid of wait lists and hire 7,500 doctors and nurses. Now, the ratio of doctors to patients is a very real problem. Tiffany and I both talked to family doctors to research this episode, and according to them, in rural Nova Scotia, one family doctor could see up to 3,000 patients. That's insane. In cities, it's about 1,000 patients to a doctor. So, Lena, is the solution to this healthcare policy problem as simple as just injecting doctors and injecting money into the healthcare system? Or do we need our leaders to talk about more targeted policies? Coming from the West and BC, we've had this problem for a lot longer. There is sort of lack of seats for doctors that have been happening for like the past decades. In our medical school programs, they kind of slash down seats about how many people who go through med school. Some doctors are calling it out like 20, 30 years ago. So it's particularly hard here in BC. You can't even get a doctor. You can't even get a full-time GP to your name unless you are a pregnant woman, essentially. So that's what the list is sort of here as priority. So uh, I would say that there's like a double, you have to kind of go and attack it at two prongs. I do think it's really interesting that the New Democratic Party are trying to opening up what is defined as medical. Um, so, you know, they're trying to expand to like dental coverage, eye care, hearing care, sort of fertility procedures, like a lot of these things that people are just paying out of pocket in BC. But also in the West, we had this huge uh, push um, by American influencers to kind of tier our medical system. So that was around for like decades as well. And people wanting and putting pressure on the system um, and opening up private clinics in order to try to get this two-tier uh, in BC. So there's a lot of business that's been pushing the private medicalization here as well. So, yeah, the West is a bit different in this situation. And I think that now that that push is a little bit over, especially during COVID, people are really thankful that they're able to have public covered care. You bring up an interesting point, too. Like all the provinces have different requirements for healthcare, right, Stuart? Like they all have like various different issues and, and gaps to fill and funding to fill. So if you're a federal leader trying to campaign during a pandemic election, nonetheless, what could you possibly say to convince residents across the country who are experiencing healthcare in various different ways that could convince them that you've got the right plan. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of been a feature of this election is people have been <laughs> dabbling in jurisdictions, which they're not actually running for. And of course, the federal government has a big role to play on healthcare. But that little schism between Legault and Trudeau, I think is really interesting, just for illustrating this, but also because 
Legault's approval ratings are so high that all the leaders have just been tiptoeing around, like just hoping they don't annoy him. And it kind of shows you how strongly the liberals feel about this feature of their plan, which allows them to do healthcare announcements where they say, we're going to hire X number of doctors, we're going to hire X number of nurses, when the federal government doesn't actually do either of those things. I mean, they can suggest it to provinces, but the provinces can do mostly whatever they want unless, you know, that's where these agreements come into uh, with the federal government. And the other thing that I would point out is that when you look at the performance of each province and Canada in general on healthcare, we already spend a lot of money and it doesn't seem to correlate with success when you compare us to peer nations. So this is the kind of thing that if you are the leader of a party, you don't necessarily want to get into the weeds on this stuff. It's much more fun to go out there and say, hey, we're going to spend a whole lot of money on healthcare, and then everything's going to be great. But there are some real problems here. And anyone who's lived for extended amount of time in different provinces, just wildly different experiences in the healthcare system. And, you know, it's not necessarily that one's better than the other, but they're better at different things. So I, I think something that's worth looking at here is that we are having a very dumb not us. We're having a very smart discussion on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> the leaders are having a very dumb discussion about healthcare. And my colleague at the Hub, Sean Spear, I think made one of the best points I've heard on this, which is that, you know, more than 50% of our uh, services are delivered privately. And those services are the ones that are growing. So prescription drugs, long-term care, things like that. It's the acute care, like hospitals um, and doctors and things like that, that are covered by the universal system. Um, if we continue to have a discussion that doesn't get into the specifics, what'll most likely happen is the status quo will continue to play out. And that means more privatization. So it does actually behoove us to get into the details on this stuff um, and, and actually talk about how we deliver it. Well, speaking of details, I actually looked up the statistics. So according to 2018 data, which is the most recent available data we have, Canada actually spends less public dollars on healthcare than the United States, France, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand. We still spend a lot. Like, I think our split between public and private is 70-30. That's pretty great. So when we have this, when I hear at least this public-private debate that leaders are having, I wonder what they mean, because I don't think a private healthcare system can guarantee universal access, which is the thing that we're most proud of when it comes to our healthcare system. So, Emily, I'm wondering, you know, Stuart brought up an interesting point about privatization and how we talk about it with so little nuance, right? Is it just too politicized for Canadians to have a real adult and intelligent conversation about public-private funding of healthcare? Yes, but I also think that we don't understand the impact of the private sector on our public sector. So we assume the public sector to function as it is just because it's flawed. But for example, I was talking earlier about labor shortage. Uh, if the private sector is able to uh, draw some of the staff, then you end up to having a public sector that is understaffed because the work conditions are, are awful or because there's a crisis of having managers over managers over managers. It'd be really interesting actually to have a survey of how much of the public health 
healthcare money is spent on managers rather than actually actual actual you know healthcare practitioners and how much that bureaucracy is just growing and growing and growing and whenever there's a problem you just add more managers as well and that sucks so much money and so when we don't get into those things when we we talk about people not being able to get a doctor and doctors being overflowed by patients if we had a healthcare system in which you can't access psychotherapy in which you can't access a psychologist in which you don't have to wait for uh, I don't know how many months to get access to a social worker if we had an understanding of social determinants of health and actually you know acted on these acted on poverty and understood that acting on poverty is actually a public health policy if we did all of those things then we didn't be just looking at we should add more doctors as a way to solve the solution and so I'm pissed as the fact that you know we talk about universal health cares and somehow our brains our eyes and our teeth are not part of universal healthcare, and of course that creates more issues than then lead into conditions that that lead to more healthcare issues that are showing up in our ER. And so, as long as we don't understand that one has an impact on the other, uh, I'm not sure that we're ready to have a conversation in which we actually look at solutions. You know, like our affordability conversation last week, all these solutions that uh, the parties are presenting us with when it comes to healthcare seem magical, but they lack serious detail. And in a lot of the ideas they're proposing seems to look like it's about health, but not really health care. Like, I haven't heard anything about the delivery of mental health, as you said, Emily, or of, you know, how to improve long-term care or or even just, you know, pharmacare, which the liberals promised us six years ago and, and still haven't delivered on, which is a whole other box of worms that will probably take us an hour to unpack. But O'Toole seems to believe that universal health care and a little privatization could spur innovation in the system, and that could be the solution to it all. Lena, do we believe O'Toole in his stance on privatization? I mean, this is a, the CBC stance is to kind of always uh, solve problems through by taking them away from the public and adding them to the private sector. So this is kind of uh, every, you know, every solution is uh, and every approach by the hammers and nails. But I mean, in the West, you know, our BC liberals who are here, who are kind of our conservative party, people in BC have wanted private for a really long time. And I think it was only a few years ago that we were able to stop it. So I think the West is looks for these solutions. We've been, you know, defunding and sort of making um, public sector private for a, a long time as sort of uh, solutions. I come from the North, like I come from Northern BC. My ideas about access is a bit different. There's so mm-hmm. many pl- people who don't have access to doctors or even like a a psychologist, psychiatrist, or a doctor, or nurse practitioners have to fly in, and they get remote community payment for these things. So they're trying to look for other ways in cities to kind of take the pressure off, and maybe some of those people can go north. I'm really into localization and kind of doing what's best for local areas as opposed to just applying a huge sweeping statement for everyone. Well, we haven't even heard much about, you know, healthcare for Indigenous communities. Lena, what do you want parties to say about rural and remote healthcare accessibility? Yeah, I mean, I'm noticing specifically about how nobody's really talking about Indigenous uh, people on their platforms at this point. So um, to say they're not mentioning it in healthcare, um, nobody's uncovering a lot of things. I'm kind of, I just think people are not looking at rural because rural people do not, they kind of consistently vote in the same parties every year. They seem to be much more static and standard uh, in their behavior about their voting. And everything's sort of riding on cities right now. Can I just say that we are somewhat not talking, I think, about indigenous healthcare 
I think, because of the lawsuit mess that is currently in the head of the federal government. Like the fact that they're not willing to apply Jordan's principle and actually trying to not pay for indigenous kids' healthcare, uh, especially when it comes, I guess the, the debate is around who counts as a First Nation and people who are not living on reserve, people are not, like they're trying to fight the definition to be as narrow as possible so that they don't have to pay for certain First Nation kids. Like, I feel like if we were to talk about the indigenous healthcare in this in this election, the fact that, you know, Cindy Blastock's always repeating that uh, we have we have been, you know, the government is fighting indigenous kids in court. I think that's something that the liberals is trying to avoid getting at the forefront of this campaign. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're, you know, we've been avoiding that debate, that conversation. Yeah, I agree. I think they're pretty silent because of, of the lawsuits. But I also think it's just not, I mean, they looked at, it, there's de- at the demographic in the last election, but now they're kind of like looking to be like, oh, did indigenous vote actually count or not? It really helped it last time. And I think that they know that they're getting uh, criticism from First Nations communities and populations. To conclude our, our very smart and complicated discussion on healthcare, not my words, Stuart's words. you got to believe Stuart, not me. The election is coming again in the midst of a global pandemic, and I wonder where there's a risk of conflating the handling of the pandemic with actual healthcare policy here. Because, like I said, there's a difference between health, which is, you know, we've seen policies about paid sick leave, childcare, vaccine passports, all of that constitutes in the realm of health, but not really much conversation about health care. It has been mentioned during this conversation, only the NDP is talking about dental care, for example. Stuart, what do we actually need to do to get Canadian politicians to go from talk to action in the healthcare space? Yeah, that question is <laughs> above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I don't want to be fatalistic about it, but this is a provincial jurisdiction, and I've watched numerous attempts at reform of um, healthcare systems in Alberta. Alberta, you know, like actually they were at the beginning of the pandemic, the bureaucracy there was something of a success story because they were alerted to it in December before anyone knew about COVID-19 and they were buying up PPE. And just a really interesting story of one department in Alberta that was on top of things. So these kind of stories, they're hard to pin down. It's hard to know if it's a systemic issue or if it's just one story of success or one story of failure. And, you know, those major reforms, sometimes they can go totally sideways. So, yeah, I don't want to sound fatalistic, but this is something that provinces have to do on their own. And then on the pandemic, I do think, though, that, you know, obviously it's a health story. It's a virus. But I think for the bulk of the population, It's not a health story in that kind of strict sense. This is a societal story. And I think that the restrictions and the measures come into that. It's a competence um, issue for our leaders. It's a lot to do with how we interact with each other and how our governments interact with us. It's a lot to do with family. And I think that there's just so much wrapped up in the pandemic that the idea that it would turn our minds to healthcare or any other issue I just don't think we're there yet. I think most of us are still just keeping our head down and trying to get through it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have a point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Stuart? I just wanted to discuss the polls for a second here. Like, we are, I think, very smartly sticking with the with the real issues. But the horse race is interesting. And I just was curious, do we believe them? And my second question is, so what does that mean? Most people don't care about politics at all, like to an incredible extent. We always think of it as this big advantage for the governing party that they can call an election whenever they feel like it, basically, even though we have a law against that. And it's keep, it's worth keeping in mind that they actually don't know anything. And <laughs> the polls can change just like that. They know as little as we do about what the electorate is feeling. Uh, and I just think that's kind of a great thing sometimes. Well, look, the backbench has a staunch anti-horse race attitude. We don't like polls here. <laughs> And we is basically me. <laughs> so um, not a point of order, but I get to share how much I hate polls. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Madam Speaker, point of order. What's your point of order, Emily? I've been blocked by the block. <laughs> like probably thousands of other people who live in block land. Yves-François Blanchette, you know, has a reputation as one of the people who block people on Twitter faster than his shadow. And it's a problem because he's been blocking other MPs, other candidates. He's been blocking people who work in the media like myself. And so at what point can a person who is a party leader just start to block his own, you know, country or electorate. There was a, an, an article a couple uh, months ago on that issue, and he was just blocking his own voters without, <laughs> without realizing that those people had voted for him. Basically, whenever you tag him on Twitter, if it's slightly even critical, it's just mentioning him saying something that puts him in a bad light, you're going to get blocked. And so I'd like to know how many people Yves-François Blanchet is blocked and whether or not that's actually, you know, an issue in the time where uh, social media takes so much space in the way that we campaign. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm debating this. That might actually be a point of order. Yeah, I think that's a point of order. Politicians shouldn't block people. I did an entire story about this a few years ago where I actually talked to, like, uh, you know, people who understood the political system. And all of them were like, yeah, if you're an elected official, why would you block someone from accessing you? Like, you could mute them, but you have a responsibility as an elected official to let anyone message you. Which, of course, is complicated because then there's a lot of female politicians who get hate. But, uh, yeah, I'm not blocked by him, Emily. So if you want me to, like, DM him, I'm happy to DM him on your behalf. Yeah, you just ask a question, like, <laughs> what is it with blocking half of Quebec? You know what? We're gonna, I'm going to tweet this. I'm going to tweet this and, and see what happens. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order today. What's your point of order, Lena? So I'm going to speak for the everyman. My point of order is, in general, why are the liberals copying BC and doing an election right now <laughs> when they know that nobody's going to go to the polls? So my point of order is, can we put it back in the Pandora's box? Can we, like, actually, like, put it back in, lock it up, throw away the key, not have a, an election right now. I love that this is the second week in a row that we've had the same point of order. And unfortunately, it's not a point of order. And I wish I had more power that I could deliver this to you all in reverse time and not have an election again. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, let's talk about regional parties because that's a thing in Canadian politics. The Bloc Québécois released their platform this week. I've always been just thrown by the fact that this federal party that opposes federalism and only exists in Quebec has so much political power. In the last parliament, the one that just ended, the Bloc actually had more seats in the federal government than the NDP. They had 32 compared to the NDP's 24. So we wanted to entertain the conversation about the extent to which regional federal parties are a significant player this federal election. You might be wondering, why should you care? We'll get to it. Take the Maverick Party in Alberta, for example. Some might characterize them as the political party born out of the Wexit movement. Remember that? The Albertan separatists who wanted to leave this country? The leader of that party is now a former conservative MP, Jay Hill. He told Jen Gerson from McLean's that the movement has, quote, changed quite dramatically to come up with a twin-track approach to greater Western autonomy, fairness, and respect. Couched in those terms, Wexit seems potentially palatable. Now, regional parties will never form a government, although the bloc has been the official opposition in the past. But they do often win enough seats to influence policy, especially when they hold what Ottawa insiders call balance of power. It basically means you have the votes to help push policy through, which is particularly important in a minority government. So, like I said, I hate horse races, but I am curious. Emily, how much of a threat do you think the Bloc Québécois poses to the Liberals in Quebec this election season? Of course, I'm answering this question as somebody who's been blocked by the Bloc, so... (laughs) Uh, I will be as uh, generous-minded as I can. Uh, No, uh, all jokes aside, um, (laughs) I think they do have a lot of power because actually our political system favors regional party in a sense that what matters is not what voting attention you have nationally, is whether or not you're able to win ridings, which is a very local thing, because we don't have proportional representation. As long as we don't have PR, uh, you could have a party that's really strong in one region that has like five, six percent of the voting intention nationally, which is the case of the bloc, but has a lot more representation than what the NDP has, which is always in a trained percent of the, of the voting intentions. And so if you don't like regional parties, you should have an electoral reform. Uh, that point being made, one of the ways for the liberals to have a majority or actually not uh, losing powers to the conservative, they need to <laughs> have some uh, writings in Quebec, not lose the ones that they have and uh, hold on to some of those and then win more. And definitely one of the, the, the party that's in the way of that is the Bloc Québécois. There's a lot of two-way races between the liberals and the Bloc, basically in all of 
suburbia land of Quebec. The conservatives are creeping in, actually, especially in the Quebec City region, but some other regions as well, where they might make some gains. But actually, I think the bloc's worst enemy is probably the bloc itself uh, right now. Uh, one thing that's been really much, very much in the news uh, this week, basically, there's this local issue in Quebec City that's a really, really big issue that not only people in Quebec City care about, which is the building of a troisième lien, they call it. So a third link underneath the St. Lawrence River between Livy and Quebec City. And uh, Quebec City is always full of writings that are switching every year. And so people try to throw money at Quebec City every year by building bridges and building roads. Yves-François Blanchette is basically saying... I'm an environmentalist. I care about climate change, but I want to build this road that would bring more traffic. But I think it could be a green thing. People, of course, don't believe in that. And so he, it might make him lose seat outside of the Quebec City region uh, because it's such an obvious thing that doesn't make sense. So it makes him look very opportunistic. And so I think the issue with the bloc is that it's very much about representing Quebec interests, but nobody knows necessarily what Quebec interests are. Uh, we don't know if it's on the left. We don't know if it's on the right. And so it's an ideological mashup of stuff. And so as a result of that, it can be really tricky to hold a platform together that is actually coherent. And if the bloc is not putting his image together a little bit better on that issue, I think it might be the beginning of something that could unravel uh, their current stance and popularities. I want to unpack that, and I want to start with the climate policy that the bloc put out, right? And there was some interesting stuff in there. So they want to redirect Quebec-allocated investments from Ottawa for fossil fuels to green industry and research. They want a climate test for all federal policies to measure the impact on the environment and climate change of all government decisions. They want to impose environmental criteria when awarding public contracts. They don't want any oil transported through Quebec via either pipelines or rail. The last point specifically, some of the most decidedly anti-pipeline rhetoric I might have seen from a federal party this election. Stuart, what role do we think the bloc's position on climate change will play in winning seats this time around? Because as Emily said, they are a threat. Yeah, actually, I was noticing that this morning. We're recording this on Monday and Justin Trudeau was in Quebec and it was a lot of bickering with the block. That was sort of the main thrust of the argument. And I think probably the biggest thing for the liberals is that they did buy a pipeline. That is something that, you know, whenever they go into Quebec, that's always going to be thrown at them. And it's something that the block takes great delight in throwing at the liberals. But that's a policy that in the rest of Canada plays moderately well. So, that is the trouble with governing is that the liberals have to govern the whole country. And then you have to go into these little regions where there are issues that are more important than they are elsewhere. And I think Quebec is even more uh, of an issue for them in that respect, because things are just very different in Quebec. I think the bloc, if there's anything they can exploit, it's this. And it's because they can be slightly less serious about their policies because they're not going to be governing and uh, they don't actually have to care about um, the health of the Federation. So one of the things that actually made me laugh when I saw it was the Bloc's um, green equalization plan, which is basically federal funding for provinces they say are more responsible on the environment. And if 
you know, you want to put that into layman's terms, that's just a big screw you to Alberta. So, I mean, that is the kind of thing that when you are a party that has no danger of ever governing, like literally mathematically, you can't govern, you can do things like that to win votes. And then uh, when you have the block with their platform, what they're looking for is a few things that they can negotiate into a deal to keep a minority government alive. So they have some room to do vote winning policies that are never going to affect anything. And then they have other policies, which will be part of really vital negotiations where they can actually win things for Quebec. So I think on that respect, climate change is going to be a big deal. So it's interesting because all the regional parties have some sort of climate policy. So uh, you might be onto something, Stuart, because on on the other side of the Bloc Quebecois run is the Alberta's Maverick Party. So they've got 27 candidates, largely in rural Alberta, and they're running on things like repealing Bill C-48 and C-69, which they call the Trudeau North Pacific Tanker Ban and the Trudeau No New Pipelines Act, respectively. BC also gets a little shout in the Maverick Party platform regarding Western autonomy. So there isn't an equivalent regional party like this in BC, like the independent Cascadia movement maybe comes close. But I wonder if you're seeing any sort of battleground ridings in Western Canada that the Maverick Party could take away from the Liberals. Oh, for sure. And when you say it was started in Alberta, for sure it started in Alberta, except we have a little piece of that too here in Prince George. So the Maverick Party is actually led by BC former MP Jay Hill in Prince George region. So Dave Jeffers, who's running, he's representing the Maverick Party, which is formerly the Wexicanda, and he has a good chance of winning that region. So he's going up against the Liberal candidate Garth uh, Frizzle, who's a, a city councillor, and the NDP candidate, uh, Audrey McKinnon, who's a CBC radio reporter until 2019. But um, he's really well known up there, and there's a lot of support for Jay Hill, so that may transfer to Dave Jeffers. And there's a lot of investment in sort of keeping the status quo in that region when it comes to economy, when it comes to using traditional resources, when it comes to actually getting... I don't know what to think about these regional parties. I genuinely don't. Like, I know they're important because they could take away seats from liberals and conservatives in, in like, key writings. But beyond that, like, I don't know what kind of policy they could enact or, you know, are they are they genuinely representative of all Canada? Are they a nuisance? Are they somewhere in between? I, I don't know. I mean... BC tends to have a history of them also, like more, like these Maverick parties are starting up in fringe parties. I mean, we have one in the Kelowna Lake region as well that's happening. So Brian Rogers is a founding member of this party called PPC, the People's Party of Canada. He wants to defend Canada from fringe radicals while running a fringe party. Lol! It's It's all very ironic. (laughs) <laughs> so uh but I, I actually think that in the Kelowna Lake region there's also a, a chance there's also a chance that they get in uh, you know Kelowna is changing demographically I think during COVID a lot of young people have gone and moved back to sort of rural areas and outside of the city and relocated but Kelowna is a very strange mix because it has a bunch of Albertans that flock in to the lake region and then it has people who are already there sort of conservative and are trying to keep the status quo there so it, it could be that some of the, you know these fringes actually do well Stuart, if a listener is someone like me who's like in suburban ontario why should a voter care about regional parties like what should we be looking out for what should we be concerned about and and where where do we think regional parties are going in both this election and in Canadian politics. I think it varies so much because they can have varying effects on, you know, the national conversation. So, 
you know, if you take a look at the Maverick Party, I think my take on them is a little different, which is that if you are the conservative party and you're winning seats by 30, 40 percentage points in Alberta, then you have some room to wiggle there. Like it doesn't really matter if they take some of that vote. And I think the calculation that Aaron O'Toole has made is that he can push his party more into the center and not in, I don't want to say he's moving in a centrist direction because he's sort of realigning the party with his, uh, just a different kind of platform, right? Like they, today they're talking about animal welfare and last week they were talking about gig workers and stuff like that. Like they're just being different. And, um, that is what everybody was sort of screaming for in 2019, where Andrew Scheer kind of took the party in that conventional Alberta centric direction. And they won the popular vote because they ran up the margins so much in Alberta. So, this is sort of an obvious cause and effect here where there's economic strife in Alberta, there's a, an unpopular conservative provincial government, there is a federal party that's moving in the wrong direction for them. And I think if you're the conservatives, they'll take that any day of the week. If they're leading in the polls in general, or they're winning by less in Alberta than they're used to, fine. If you are the rest of Canada and you're looking at the block. That's something you should pay attention to, because at some point, if we have a minority government, the bloc will be important. If you think the conservatives are going to win a minority government, who are they going to work with? I would be surprised if it's the bloc. But I mean, even the NDP is a tough one to imagine, too. So if you're the liberals and they win the most seats and they take a shot at governing in a minority again, those conversations are going to be vital. Okay, as always, there's so much happening on this election campaign trail and in Canadian politics, so we're going to have a rapid-fire section, which is more fire than rapid this time, and here's why. The election campaign is getting really and worryingly nasty. Last week, Justin Trudeau had to cancel an event in Ontario due to security concerns. In one video, people were chanting, piece of shit, at him. (laughs) Justin Trudeau said he had never seen this intensity of anger on the campaign trail or in Canada ever before, either with his dad or as a politician himself. Anti-mask protesters have yelled slurs at him. They've called him Fidel Castro's son. (laughs) Others have chanted, lock him up. Trudeau promised he wouldn't back down. Uh, We should also note that Jagmeet Singh has also faced uh, a bunch of racism on the trail. Stuart, is Justin Trudeau right? Is this vitriol new and the result of almost two years of lockdown? Yeah, I I think there's a new tenor to this, but... I mean, I was covering Alberta politics when they were chanting locker up about Rachel Notley. And there's been past incidences of this. I just realized it's rapid fire, so I should probably wrap this up immediately. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Whether it's new or not, it's disturbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another rapid fire question. This one goes to Lena. Leaders are also stooping to the same behavior. Conservative candidate and longtime MP Cheryl Gallant used a picture that appears to show Trudeau pulling a lanyard to one side while sticking out his tongue in a video questioning if he was planning a, quote, climate lockdown, whatever that means. Erin O'Toole didn't denounce her, but the party tweeted that, quote, the threatening images and behavior are disgusting and that, quote, Canada is better than this. Fact check, it really isn't. Please look in my email inbox this week. Lena, do you think we should have a standard for discourse among politicians? People should be protected from... It should be kept a fair shots. There should be this much mudslinging this early and this much gifts and memes and being mean. Amen. 
And then finally, on a less crazy and intense but also emotionally charged note, Canadian-bound Afghans have been saved by Ukrainians after our government ended evacuation efforts earlier than previously assured. We had a great conversation about this in last week's Backbench episode, but Emily, is this another deeply low moment for us? Yes, it is. What we've been saying in the last couple of weeks is just awful, and it's been 20 years in the making. And the one thing I'm going to say is that I wish we could stop having conversation about what went wrong that only goes back six months ago mm-hmm. and start talking about what happened after 9-11. I think that'd be great. And on that dark and depressing note, we're going to turn. That was the backbench. We'll be back next week. We've gone weekly for the election and we hope you're tuning in and you will tune in and that you're enjoying this. You can write us at backbench at or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If this episode helped you understand an election issue better, you probably have a friend who might learn a lot more from listening to us too. Please consider sharing our podcast with that friend to keep them in the loop about this hashtag no attention election. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Please don't send me hate mail. Emily, where can people find you? On Twitter, except François Blanchette. Uh, <laughs> I can be found as well in Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette. Lena, where are you? At Lena Menifee on Twitter and some of my old articles on Ricochet Media. And Stuart, tell people about The Hub. Yeah, check out thehub.ca. We're doing an election live blog right now where we're just focusing entirely on the policies that are being announced. And we have analysis instantly, not quite instantly, but pretty close to it about each policy. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's a good way to just uh, stay away from the horse race. Thehub.ca, y'all. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. The election continues. We'll see you next week.